Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. If we talk about making city together, you could go beyond that wooden bench that is maybe cute that you put outside your house or a summer bar or whatever. You could actually think about shaping the skyline of your city in this way. Cities run on people power, from the bus driver to the barista to the bin man. But how do we get the average citizen to pitch in on urban planning ideas and city governance too? Today, we explore projects powered by the public, from a cultural centre facilitating public discussion to a regeneration project accepting master planning submissions from around the world. All that and more coming up right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Welcome to today's programme. We're going to start right here in London, in a waterside community that's been undergoing a years-long regeneration project. Situated on the banks of its namesake river, Thamesmead is set amongst lakes, ample green space and over a mile of undeveloped river frontage. Just last month, an international master planning competition for the Thamesmead waterfront was launched in a joint venture between Peabody and Lend-Lease, and it calls for innovative, creative, collaborative and diverse teams from across the world to contribute to the circa £8 billion project. John Lewis is Peabody's Executive Director of Thamesmead and leads the regeneration efforts in the area, and he joins me now. John, perhaps firstly you could describe for our listeners around the world where Thamesmead is and also how you became involved in this place. Thamesmead sits on the south side of the River Thames, heading towards the southeast of London. So in terms of distance, it's about 10 kilometres out of central London, and it enjoys something like seven kilometres of water frontage. So it's got an incredible location. It's currently a town of about 46,000 people. And just to give you a bit of scale, you could fit the whole of central London into the landmass that is Thamesmead. So that gives you a bit of a perspective of scale. But also in terms of scale, you can imagine how busy somewhere as urban as central London is. To only have a place of 45,000 people in the same landmass gives you an idea of how much elbow room there is for further development. So as Peabody is a, a large housing association in London, we've been going since the mid-Victorian times. We actually got involved in Thamesmead back in 2014 and took over a housing association that was dedicated to looking after the housing in the area. And as part of that, we found ourselves with quite a large portfolio of development land. And one part of that sits right on the Thames itself, which is over 100 hectares in scale, which is giving us the opportunity to plan for a whole new city neighbourhood in the area. Now, you're doing this in an interesting time. Actually, perhaps first I should just say that I did look at the pictures. It's an extraordinary piece of land. It's mostly undeveloped. It's right on the riverfront. It's in between, in a way, the existing town and the river. But tell me, when you start planning for a place like this and you're seeing all these shifts in, in what's demanded of our urban spaces, you know, that people are saying they're leaving the city, they want to be in more rural areas, other people saying that actually what they want to do is move to the suburbs. Does it make it a complicated thing for you to start such a huge piece of urban planning at this time? I think it would have been if perhaps we were talking in the situation maybe three or four years' time. We've been fortunate in the sense that we 
I'd spent a lot of our time structuring how we should bring this forward as an organization. So last year, we signed up with Lendlease, a global development company, and created a dedicated company to bring this forward. And we put a lot of effort into that to think about this sort of scale of delivery. You need basically people with broad shoulders to be able to take this on, hence the combination of ourselves and Lendlease. But I think what's been interesting is that we haven't put any detail into the sort of place it should be. And that's literally where we're at now. So we have the advantage of being able to think about what we're all going through currently in respect of COVID-19 and how we might come out of that the other side and how that has really changed people's views on what I've been describing them as city consumers. You know, what, what do we really want from our places now? And we have the opportunity to start to think about that looking forward rather than perhaps trying to catch up or change as some large-scale planning situations find themselves in now. Now, Tommy, when we look along the river, there have been many opportunities in the past two or three decades to redevelop sites which were either industrial sites or, or even greenfield sites. And what's tended to happen is it's been office space, it's been properties often not aimed at the local community, it's often ended up in some really terrible architecture. How are you going to dodge all of these bullets, as it were, and create somewhere that you know is good for the people who are already in Thamesmead, but of course brings in more people? As you say, it's not a very densely populated area, and I presume that if the world does get ticking along nicely again, it will be an ideal spot for people commuting into London for jobs, or even if they are home working, it's going to have always this connection with London. Just tell us a little bit about that. I think what what we find ourselves in now is this real sort of sense of how important it is to have a neighbourhood around you. Because I think what we've learned, particularly people who perhaps are used to working in maybe the traditional office environment, is that actually we can work in many different places and still achieve an enormous amount. So I feel that even post-COVID, we're going to just see very different patterns of urban behaviour. The fact that being in very historic urban centres will probably be a choice. So it's going to be much more leisure based, much more about socialisation, much more about interest. But the idea of what we need to do in front of a screen, I think everyone's recognised is now completely flexible. So I think in planning a large scale neighbourhood that enjoys close proximity to central London is about recognising that we do have to assume and want people to stay in the area itself during the weekends. This idea of everyone getting up early, leaving and coming back in the evening, I think is well and truly broken, actually. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It just means we need to plan for it differently. So that means that I think people have often said about enjoying somewhere you want to be. And I think we've got the opportunity with so much space to actually really create something that is a place of choice, that does have that mix of open spaces and really attractive buildings. Start to really plan around the civic spaces rather than just thinking about individual buildings, which I think some developments more recently have often focused on. So I think there's a huge opportunity to really think about how people feel about where they live and where they spend an enormous amount of time. And I think if you start from that premise, which is effectively people-centric, it gives an opportunity to plan around them. And I think that leads to far more successful places rather than perhaps the individual building design approach. You've laid out some of the guiding principles for what's going to happen here in Thamesmead. They're I'm not being mean here, but they're big brushstrokes, you know, natural living, be a city neighbourhood, better connections, safe, stable and sustainable, all the S's, and inclusive and affordable. I don't think anything there that anyone would want to dispute, but give us one or two glimpses of how that might come to fruition in a way that might be a bit more surprising that goes beyond the phrases. 
I mean, at this stage, the phrases do mean a lot because, as you know, we've gone out to find a strategic master planner by launching a global competition to basically bring in the learning from across the globe into planning this new neighbourhood. And so we've been really careful to not define anything because that's part of that job is to define the kind of place this should be. But if you relate it a bit further to what we're doing elsewhere in Tensor, because this is only one part of the whole of Tensor, 750 hectares in total. So you can see this is just one part of that. We have taken a really granular approach to schemes elsewhere, where we will start with basically neighbourhood groups to discuss how should this place be for you? You know, you've lived here a long time. What do you want to see? And taking it forward from their perspective. So that doesn't involve master plans. It doesn't involve designers. It involves just conversation. Because I think the more you theorise about things, you can often get so remote, you don't really start to relate places to what people really want. So we have really focused on, I would say, as an example, for, we've done a huge amount of cultural work in Thamesmead. It's been an area that's been around for around 50 years now. It celebrated that a couple of years ago. And often people say, you know, there's nothing to do here. We've got all this open space, but we've got nothing to do with it. So we've heard that, listened to it, and actually started to see how you can animate parks, how you bring lakes alive, how you have celebratory events. And those sort of things get people really meshed into their community and their local culture. And we feel the more you do that in an area, the more you can then expand, learn, have great relationships. And that's how you can start to plan in a lot of detail to create new places as well. And John, give us a bit of a hint of the timetable then. These epic projects are always slow to move along. So there's competition and then the building stages. And I presume there's some fundraising that needs to continue alongside that. So give us some hint at when will people potentially be living there also? Yeah, so as I say, if we just focus on the waterfront, so that's the big project that sits within an existing town. So that's a 30-year development programme. And one of the big drivers of it is to bring the Docklands Light Railway, the transit system in London, across the Thames into Thamesmead. And that process as well would mean that that wouldn't arrive all being well till 2030. So that's 10 years away. But what it means is we can plan alongside that. So as we know, we have the certainty of that coming. We can then plan for phases of development as well. So in reality, I think the first space for people to live in the absolute earliest would be about six years from now would be my guess but it is predicated on making sure we've got the transport infrastructure in place to make sure it's as sustainable as possible but these do take a long time and that's why I go back to the sort of public involvement side of it one of the things we learned when we got involved in Thamesmead is that you can plan for the future but if you don't talk about the now you basically completely disaggregate or disengage with people who live there now so we had a whole improving the lived experience program which was all about making sure that the basics were in place, that the landscape was looked after, the buildings were repaired, the streets were cleaned, some really basic sort of janitorial work to make sure that it was an enjoyable place to live now. And as long as you can balance that today and the future, I think you can actually make sure the energy levels are high in a place, even though it's long-term development programming that we're actually working on. And tell me, perhaps, finally, so we, we have the competition for this development going ahead. What are the, some of the things that you're going to be looking for in that competition? What would, what would allow a very good entry to come across the finishing line first? Obviously, I can't divulge specifics, but obviously, you know, the skills of design and experience in placemaking, as I say, from other countries would be hugely interesting to us. But I think there'll be a lot of people who've got the skills in doing that. I think what's going to make me very interested in certain submissions is the breadth of their team. 
And one of the things that I've got a real interest in is this whole issue around play psychologists. How do we really understand how people use spaces? You know, we're very good, I think, in this country and in many, many countries in designing physical buildings, but often the spaces around them are neglected. You know, really understanding how people use them, what people want from them. And I think as we see this emerging, as I say, sort of city consumer mentality, I think it'd be really fascinating to see what people come forward with, with that dimension, which is becoming, in my view, very important when you start to create new places. John Lewis, Peabody's Executive Director of Thamesmead there. Thank you for joining us. Ljubljana receives plenty of plaudits for its commitment to making the city sustainable. And that also means making sure that neighbourhoods work for the people who live there. The municipality has worked with tactical urbanists, Prosteroj, who get people to participate in the transformation of the spaces that they use. And as our man in Ljubljana, Guy Delorny, discovered, it's not just the capital that's reaped the rewards of this approach. This is Park Tabor, a green space in the centre of Ljubljana that's become an important community hub. It's not just about the small sports court or the wooden benches for relaxing under the well-established trees. In normal times, there are regular neighbourhood events here. Everything from craft fairs to yoga sessions and art classes. Just a few years ago, this place had a reputation as a no-go zone, strictly for drug users only. But then the community got together to change things with a little help from the tactical urbanists at Prostoroj. I'm Alinka Koreniak, I'm an architect and I'm a co-founder and a project leader in the association of Prostoroj. We put the park tabor on the map of Ljubljana at the time when we were um, actively participating in Park Tabor events and organizing events and it meant a lot because like the Park Tabor had this notion of just drug addicts are there Uh, we don't like this park, it's neglected Um, and what we maybe proved there is if you bring other people and other activities you change the perspective of the place we have a people's approach I would say to public spaces we approach people that use them and we try to see the potential of, it, of the places and we try really a lot of um, innovative tools to address the issues that, like how the public spaces should be resistant to, to weather, to the climate change, how the public spaces could address needs of the inhabitants in the city now and in the future. So, in essence, you're asking people what they want from the spaces they live in and trying to help them achieve that. Yeah, but also, we are also, through the participation, we try to understand why why the places are so important for the people that use them or why some people don't use them, what you have to do that, to, to bring people out. When you say it's about participation, does that mean you're kind of getting your hands dirty, as it were? Of course, all the time. <laughs> I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> so what, what does that look like then? Yeah, it looks like... Maybe I describe the project that I really like that we did this year in Idria. It's a mining city, like 50 kilometers from Ljubljana away. And it, it's, it was a 200-meter-long street with parking lots. We did some participatory um, uh, events with uh, inhabitants, so we knew the place and we turned this uh, street into a, a nice, pleasant square in three days. 
to what degree are you doing this in consultation with the local authorities? Because I can imagine that if you do this without the goodwill, at the very least, of yes. the local authorities, you're going to get closed down very quickly. Yeah, two years ago, we started a participatory project, so we did a lot of activities together with inhabitants on this street. And later on, one year later, we also did a parking policy for the Idria. So we had numbers, and in behind, we already knew how many cars we could put away. It was a calculated thing, and also uh, people were um, educated about it. They knew exactly why these parking lots could be missed, because there is additional parking lot elsewhere, and they exactly knew also, they knew us as an association, they knew what are the expectations of the city, also the, the city municipality knew what to expect from us. So it is. it was a long, long procedure before it, but then at the end, yeah, why I like... This, this change because it's it's a quick change and it brings a lot really. Have you now got a formula for how this sort of tactical slash participatory yeah. urbanism works? Two or three years ago we did we in, a, in a frame of one project we did a manual how to approach uh, how to analyze the place, how to analyze the uh, social life uh, and then how to come together to a solution via uh, temporary installations, via te- uh, tests. What sort of re- reception do you get to that mm-hmm. approach? We always like start with uh, working with municipality and then parallel working with uh, inhabitants because like uh, inhabitants expect answers. If you are um, like an activist in the public space, you have to know what's what you can promise or what's your limit, and that's why it's really good to know the city municipality. And also, it's good to transmit this knowledge to the city municipality. And in Vienna, like the, um, they say, the NGOs or the people that we work in, like in public spaces, we are like, like translators. We translate uh, city strategies to people, and we translate the needs of our social social needs to the city municipality. And ultimately, what it translates to is a better quality of life for residents in Slovenia's cities. For Monocle in Ljubljana, I'm Guy Delaunay. We turn to Belgium now, where a new centre has just opened its doors to citizens. Launched by the workers' collective Endeavour, Stadsform is a new space in the city which aims to bring people, officials and practitioners together to discuss the future of the urban environment in Antwerp and also beyond. Well, I'm joined now by Jan Deneau, co-curator of Stadsform. Jan, thanks for joining us. Could you explain to our listeners what exactly Stadsform is and what the ambition behind it is too? I guess it makes sense to kind of go a couple of years back, though, why we thought there was an urgency to launch Statsform. But to quickly explain what it is, it's basically an event space, you could say, or a cultural center in the city of Antwerp, where we invite its citizens to discuss the the future of the city, not necessarily Antwerp, but the city on a global level as well. We launched this space and we will be curating it from our workers' cooperative Endeavor. Endeavor is launched around seven years ago. And the goal of Endeavor is 
opening up the, the machinery of cities and trying to hack it together with the people that inhabit the cities. And this office kind of launched in yeah the whole upsurge that we've seen in the past decade of more participatory modes of urban planning and where you see public, private and civic actors asking a lot more input from citizens on how they would like to see their city evolve. But we said, well, they do not necessarily have, have the right means to actually listen. If we ask citizens how they would like to see the future of their city, you should do that in a very particular way. And we think there's three big reasons why back then and maybe still a bit today, people aren't really listened to. And we, we aim to counter these reasons. So I guess a first one is You've seen a lot of, I guess, also in the UK and uh, well around uh, the world, uh, a lot more initiatives asking uh, people maybe at their doorstep what they would like to see in their park, in their street, in their city. But we said, well, if you do that, you're not really listened to because when you ask advice, you want that advice to be a bit informed maybe or at least grounded or, or that the person who's giving the advice has thought about it and so we said you should not just ask people on their doorstep what they would like but actually really design a process where their input is evaluated i think a, a second reason why people are not really listened to that we aim to counter is that maybe we're not even asking them the right questions I think one of the interesting things, you know, you're highlighting some points that we've discussed here in the past, some complications about this kind of open access to designing a city when you try to have participatory urbanism. I guess one of the things that we've noticed is, yes, people tend to ask a question in a way that they get the answer they want. But too, there is a problem with the, the hacking of the city that some of the solutions that are put forward by organizations, even individuals, are not very workable, wouldn't be for the good of the whole of the city. They tend to then represent one neighborhood's view or one community's view. So getting a consensus still kind of needs proper city leadership and uh, even one or two individuals who are good at running a process, at making things happen. So how does your hacking of the, the city sit alongside civic hall and governance do you see them as complementary or is this a way of stopping city hall pressing ahead with redevelopment plans or selling off buildings what is the relationship between the two well if you're asking for the relation that we have with for example public authorities well we usually collaborate with them they ask us to really design a good process where you first of all inform citizens about maybe also the broader issues that are at stake that go beyond their neighborhood and then involve them in a whole process where they can give their input. And I think it's a bit of an extension of the whole citizen science kind of practice that's coming up. So in, in Flanders and in Belgium, where we're based with Endeavor, there was a really big study on emissions uh, in, in the city. And of course, it was known that this was a big issue, but it was hard to really involve citizens in how to change this. So what they did together with the University of Antwerp launched this idea to let people measure NOx levels at their doorstep. And in that way, yeah, kind of city level issues became very personal because they measured the NOx levels that were really at their doorstep or at the school of their kids. And this was kind of the first step to then involve citizens on this broader level. 
could you give us some examples where, you know, perhaps in Antwerp or in other cities where you've worked, where you've gone to the community and asked them more interesting questions, you've involved them in the debate. What kinds of things did they come up with as suggestions which may inform or change the thinking of what's happening in City Hall? Well, so I guess one of the most exemplary projects that we've been involved in, well, it started out in 2016, where a friend of ours posted a Facebook post saying, well, there's this one of the three big buildings in Antwerp, known as a police tower or the Audan, was for sale. This was a, a building from the city. We thought, well, this is some heritage, actually, that you cannot just put on the market. And so what we did is we just launched this campaign, took that idea of our friend on Facebook very serious to actually buy the building together with hundreds of inhabitants of Antwerp and to really make it again a building of the city, which was actually the plan of the architect in the first place. It would actually host a lot of the services that are now in the city hall. This would actually be the city hall building. And what we did was we launched a campaign called Bekopen Samenden Audan, which is led by the Audan or the police tower. And in one weekend, we got 4,000 likes on Facebook of people that really wanted to think about, okay, if we buy it, how should we then think about what could be in that building, right? And so the city was kind of surprised that their building was the subject of this whole public campaign with lots of inhabitants thinking about what it could be for the city. And so there we really made sure that people got to know the building, we did tours there, we did an exposition about it and debates, and some really concrete examples of people that otherwise wouldn't have a space in the city could propose things that would really make sense in that building. I guess there, I, I know because you, you told us a little bit of this story before we came on air, is that there, in the end, the city decided still to sell the building to a private developer. So did you see that as a success because, you know, you'd started the conversation, made people feel that they should have a right to contribute? Or did you see that in the end as a failure of this process in, in the sense that it's great to get people excited, but in the end, City Hall will go with the money? Yeah, well, at that time... It was very disappointing, you could say, but we kind of turned that into an opportunity because there was a lot of dynamic around that whole story. Okay, it was eventually sold to a private developer, but there we kind of felt the importance of a narrative that is going beyond this one project, which was, well, if we talk about making city together, you could go beyond that wooden bench that is maybe cute that you put outside your house or a summer bar or whatever that you put together with some friends. But you could actually think about shaping the skyline of your city in this way. And so this is a narrative that kept on living the past years. We've been speaking about it in a lot of conferences uh, around the world. And we said, well, this whole narrative that came about by these debates that we organized during this project, that really needs a space to land, to in the future also have a space where you could discuss the future of the city, discuss big ideas that you, you have for your city. So that's why we launched Stadsforum. Tell me, perhaps finally, you know, so you, you now have this physical space you're going to be doing events and talks and guided walks and all sorts of things to get people involved in how you make a city. 
We sit at a very strange moment. In Belgium, you have many restrictions, as we do in the UK. You haven't been able to invite the public physically into the space yet. You're going to have to do many things virtually. When you look ahead, you know, we can't any of us guess what's really going to happen. But when you look ahead, are you excited that this means that there'll be more opportunities for people to help shape and reform and rebuild their cities in the years ahead? Or are you a little bit panicked that actually maybe this is going to be a very dark time for cities and that city halls, rather than wanting to hear what the public wants, will be just stuck with debt and with a declining population? Yeah, well, we've all seen the stories from New York to even cities here where you've seen people leaving the city and really abandoning it. And yeah, we we also put up a a poster campaign really stating these questions like, is the city the cause of COVID or is it maybe the solution? Huh? So we're very aware that this is an, uh, a big issue, but it's exactly now that we need to talk about those cities that we're not really getting stuck with these ideas that cities are the places that are the most dangerous. Of course, the numbers would suggest so, but maybe if we live in cities, have a more compact footprint for our global population on the world, we could then maybe diminish these events like COVID-19 in the future. So it's kind of this uh, contradiction that we're looking for also uh, today, but then at least discuss it rather than making very fast conclusions and leaving the city. So I guess we're really at a perfect time to launch Stadsforum. Of course, we indeed practically have this issue of a limit to the number of people that we can invite to our event space. But we're sure we're going to uh, get beyond this. And we're also live streaming at the same time. Jan Deneau, partner at Endeavour and co-curator of Stadsform. Thank you for joining us. Well, that's all for this edition of the programme. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens. David also edited the show. And to play you out of this week's episode, well, here's Pulp with Common People. Thank you for listening, city lovers. You wanna live like common people. You wanna see whatever common people see. Wanna sleep with common people. You wanna sleep with common people like me.